This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. Brands partner with ShipBob to scale from zero to a multi-million dollar company. Need global fulfillment centers and real-time inventory data? Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. Hi there, it's Elliot. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org. Thanks a lot and enjoy the show. Last week, Senate Republicans blocked a bipartisan border bill including $95 billion in wartime aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other nations. The bill links GOP requests for stricter immigration policy and changes Democrats' requests for more aid to Ukraine. The deal unraveled last week, and Senate Democrats still hope to push a plan of foreign aid forward. So how has the southern border become a leveraging tool for Senate Republicans? What changes to border policy does the GOP want to see? How likely is it that these changes will take shape before November? We get into those questions after the break. And later, we get into what's at stake for Ukraine without U.S. support. I'm Elliot Williams, a legal analyst for CNN, in for Jen White. 1A's Todd Zwillick is also here. Hey there. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get into the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Morgan Stanley. Inclusion is fuel for innovation. On Access and Opportunity, an award-winning show from Morgan Stanley, they take you inside the companies at the intersection of building equity for their communities and creating business solutions in overlooked areas of the market, from closing the women's sports pay gap to leveling the playing field in the music industry. Follow Access and Opportunity wherever you listen. Let's get into it and meet our panel. Joining us now is Claudia Grisales. She's a congressional correspondent at NPR. Claudia, great to have you back. And also with us is Brian Boitler. Brian's the author of Off Message. That's a substack covering politics. Brian, also good to have you on the show. So, Claudia, let me start with you. Republicans blocked the border bill last week, which is a reversal of the position that they themselves championed. What was their reasoning? Right. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating in yeah. terms of how this all came together and fell apart very quickly. Um, and indeed, Senate Republicans called for big changes on the border in terms of border policy, perhaps boosting the kind of support that border agents and others have in terms of managing um, that region. And as that deal came together, the momentum came from former President Trump. As we know, we believe he is the lead nominee to be uh, president um, for the Republican Party. And so from there to House Republicans, to House Speaker Mike Johnson, pressure was building. They didn't want to see this border plan get traction, and some openly admitted that it would hurt them, Republicans, on the campaign trail if 
President Biden were to get a win on addressing the border issues. And quickly, Senate Republicans fell in line after the deal was revealed earlier last week, and they had to reverse course. Now, you've been up there a while, and uh, behind the scenes, it becomes clear to everybody at a certain point that things are going south, right? So I'd be curious as to what conversations were happening or or going on behind the scenes in the Senate when it was abundantly clear that the vote wasn't going to go through. Right, exactly. It was interesting seeing the dynamics between the lead Republican negotiator in the Senate, this is Jim Lankford of Oklahoma, making all this progress with this bipartisan group that included a Democrat, an independent, and getting to this point months later, four months later of crafting this legislation. But at the same time as they got closer, we would hear different members of the party raise questions as to whether there was enough support within the Senate Republican conference to to get behind it. And so that's what we started to hear was was cracks in that support as we continued to hear concerns from House Republicans and others that this was something they did not want to move on after all. Brian Boitler, what's your read on how we got to this point where border policy got linked to aid for Ukraine and Israel and then Republicans turned around and killed the deal that they demanded. Right. I don't think that you can understand the events of last week fully without realizing that Republicans were looking starting last year for a way to end aid to Ukraine without sort of being caught being the ones holding the knife. And so when aid expired last fall, they said we are not going to renew assistance to Ukraine unless Democrats agree to pass Republican preferred policy measures to seal up the border and expedite removal of immigrants that are already living in the country. And I, the, the, the sense that um, we've developed over the last few weeks is that Republicans didn't think the Democrats would accept that deal. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of a non sequitur, aid to Ukraine versus border security here in the United States. Like what do the two things have to do with each other? But they linked them and then they anticipated that Democrats would not agree to some sort of swap like that or, or to, to give these concessions unilaterally when they know that there is bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine. What happened is that Democrats decided to play ball. Mm. And they played ball all the way to coming up with a with a, a very Republican-friendly set of measures that they negotiated with, uh, with Senator James Langford from Oklahoma, who's a conservative Republican. And once the deal came together, Republicans had to recalculate because now suddenly the aid to Ukraine that they wanted to stop is in a bill that, that has the votes probably to pass. Um, and Joe Biden will have put together a package to address uh, the, the flood of migrants reaching the, the southern border. And Republicans decided that they wanted to deny President Biden a bipartisan victory and they wanted to prov- – they wanted to sustain a sense of disorder along the southern border so that they could sort of feed that sense of chaos to voters ahead of the election. Yeah. Now, Claudia, I have a question for you about the substance. So much of the discussion here is about the politics. What is being linked to Ukraine or how things might hurt Democrats or Republicans in either way. But I'm actually curious what actual immigration policy changes were included in the bill. Right. For example, the asylum process would have been streamlined and in essence – 
sped up. And it also would have been limited in terms of who would have qualified. So that's a big issue on the border, for example, that members wanted to address Mm. in terms of the asylum. This would have also given President Biden executive authority to shut down the border when we would see a threshold hit of the number of migrants approach, for example, if it were to hit, say, 5,000 migrants in a day, Mm -hmm. then you could see a shutdown of the border. So it was addressing some of these very conservative policies that Republicans were demanding. And as Brian mentions, uh, Republicans really were calling for this and Democrats called their bluff. And in the end, Republicans had to make this reversal. Let me stay with you one quick question. When we talk about shutting down the border, what does that actually mean? Because when you think about the literally hundreds of millions of dollars of commerce, trucks, tractor trailers that are going to and from Mexico, are we talking about shutting that down or people? Like what? No, no, we're not talking about business. We're talking about people. We're talking about migrants. And this is one of the big talking points that Republicans use is the number of migrants that are attempting to cross. And so this would have put a cap in terms of what we could see daily limits, weekly limits in terms of how many individuals could attempt to get through those border crossing points. All right. We're talking to Claudia Grisales, NPR congressional correspondent, and Brian Boitler, author of Off Message. That's a substack covering politics. So in remarks from the White House last week, President Biden placed the blame for the failure on the border package right squarely on Donald Trump. Let's listen. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even though it helps the, the, the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. So for the last 24 hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this proposal. So, Brian, over to you. <laughs> Everything is Trump uh, in American politics in many respects, even things that aren't. But what role does former President Trump play in the failure of this package? He told Republicans in Congress to vote against it, wow. and, they, and they don't want to be on the wrong side of him. He has proven uh, adeptly over many years that he can essentially end the careers of uh, Republican office holders who who cross him in any way by eventually they will have to run for reelection. They will face a primary. And if they're not, uh, you know, um, in Donald Trump's good graces, they're likely to draw a credible challenger. So that's that's the main lever that he has against uh, against Republicans in Congress. And, you know, they didn't really try to hide it. It wasn't it wasn't Joe Biden who broke the news that Donald Trump wanted to to tank the immigration bill. It was it was Donald Trump wow. and some of his. Um, you know, closest allies in Congress, I, uh, Congressman Troy Nels is uh, one who leaps to mind, a congressman from Texas, who said, we don't want to help Joe Biden's approval ratings. Why would we want to lift his, quote unquote, dismal uh, approval rating? And when and when word got out that for political reasons, Donald Trump did not want this bill to pass, that's when Republicans who had previously said, including, you know, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, that they supported this effort, reversed course and uh, and opposed it. So lost in all of this, or maybe not lost in all of this, is the fact that there's still this open question of Ukraine and Israel. And Claudia, question uh, to you. Obviously, this remains a priority both for Democrats. What can we expect to see from them in terms of an amended bill uh, to address Ukraine and Israel? 
Yeah, we've seen an interesting, uh, interesting change in effort here because Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer laid out the same bill minus these border provisions. So this supplemental aid bill, foreign aid bill, includes aid to Ukraine, Israel, and a- other allies. And so in that effort, the Senate has been in essentially all weekend. They return today, this evening, for an expected vote. Basically, they're going through a very long slog in terms of procedural votes to get to a final passage for this foreign aid bill. And currently, we're seeing enough Republicans joining with Democrats to try and push this foreign aid bill forward. So it's very possible the Senate could pass this later this week, but it'll be a whole different question if the House will even take it up. That's Claudia Grisala. She's a congressional correspondent at NPR. Claudia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, coming up later in the show, we're going to talk about the implications of congressional infighting on Ukraine's war effort. Back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor SAP Concur. Stuart McLean, CFO of Brother UK, shares how SAP Concur's audit and expense tool supports their work across multiple offices. Across Europe, we, we have a presence in 17 countries, which obviously involves 17 different tax regulations, 17 different fiscal authorities, you know, and this, this makes life complicated for us. Um, but actually with SAP Concur, we're able to configure the system correctly for each of those countries. We're able to configure the audit rules correctly for each of those countries. So actually, it gives us a lot of efficiency and good governance as well. So actually, for us, a solution like SAP Concur makes life so much easier. Otherwise, we'd be forever checking back to regulations, checking back to documentation. Those are automatically updated in the system for us. So that's, you know, it's a big tick in the box from a governance perspective and an efficiency perspective as well. Visit concur.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Brian, let's get back to Trump for a moment. He's thrilled to have the base see him kill this bill. Why isn't he afraid that the broad middle of moderate voters will be upset with him? I think that it it boils down to the issue that um, immigration, like law enforcement and other matters, are sort of Republican-coded themes, and that he doesn't think he's going to lose credibility on the issue simply because this bill dies. He'll still be able to claim, I'm the immigration guy. While on the topic of Trump, Brian, President Biden has laid the blame for Congress's inability to come together on the border on Donald Trump. How much power does Joe Biden have in getting Congress to work together, particularly as a former stalwart of the U.S. Senate? Well, I think at at this point he would need Senate Republicans to sort of reconsider and and Mm. pass this piece of legislation. Um, And then if it went to the House – you could you could imagine him working in concert with House Democrats. There are there are mechanisms that they could use to, in theory, force a vote. And you can sense in the way Speaker Mike Johnson talks about it that he's really he he's not saying just we don't want to have a vote on this bill. He's sort of pleading with Senate Republicans, don't pass it, don't send it my way. Um, and I think that that's because he he anticipates that if it did pass the Senate, they would be able to force a vote. And it, it might become law, and that would defy Donald Trump's wishes. But apart from legislation, 
passing, there's there's strong limits on what President Biden could do on his own. I guess as the Senate gets more Trumpified, I don't know what the better uh, term is, but is Joe Biden losing some of his ability to have the kind of sway over Congress that sort of made him so appealing to being Barack Obama's vice president? I don't think that you're going to see, for instance, another uh, piece of legislation like the uh, bipartisan immigration bill that passed in his first two years uh, pass again this election year. And I think that that's fairly normal in in the scheme of things. In an election year, Congress tends to shut down. People sort of put on their partisan blinders and they don't want to give the incumbent party big obvious victories. This one's different because Republicans demanded it and then and then made the reversal. Yeah. But y- you, he, he can't force Republicans to want to help him and they don't. How good of a job, Brian, do you think the political press has done covering this issue? And I, and I mean, Republicans demand for a strict border deal, as you laid out mm-hmm. just a few minutes ago in conjunction with Ukraine and the rest of it. And then the ultimate death of the deal, why it died, what the incentives are for it dying. How, how good of a job do you think the political press has done here in this election year? Not bad, um, honestly. I mean, it's it, it puts the political press in a difficult position um, because there's sort of a reluctance in in mainstream news reporting against sort of jacques against one party or another. They did something sort of in bad faith. They, they did something that they said that they weren't going to do. But it, it was so plain. I mean, the, 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 the proposition was you'll get your Ukraine aid if you agree to border provisions like these. And then Democrats agreed to border provisions like those. And now they say, sorry, just kidding, right? They, they, they turn the whole thing around. And so now the question is, are they going to accept Ukraine aid without the border provisions that they asked? And, and given the contradiction of the, the, the contradiction, it's so obvious that I think that the, the overall tenor of reporting has reflected that, um, which is not how it always, always goes. And to, not to say that it's been perfect, but pretty good. Now, I, I could be wrong, but I understand there's a presidential election coming up. <laughs> heard, is yeah. that accurate? Okay, good. Just I haven't checked the calendar recently, but but no. But you know, but I'm curious here about you know what kind of discussions are out there about how this failure to pass a bill might actually have an impact on that election. Right. So as I mentioned before, Donald Trump is I think banking on this idea that he is already branded in the in the American public's imagination as the immigration mm-hmm. candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, I think, is anticipating that there will continue to be migrant crossings. And, you know, his his allied news outlets like Fox News will air footage of migrants crossing the border and and that kind of like his agitprop to c- convince people to vote for Republicans. What what Democrats, I think, are are awakening to is that Republicans decision to to kill this bill after demanding it gives them um, an opportunity to say that they're not playing fair. They're not they're not being straight with the public or with us, and you can't really trust them, whether that's on immigration or anything else. And it's an open question as to whether they can make that stick, but I think that's what they're going to do is, is say he's, he is trying to s- sabotage essentially policy along the border for his personal gain, and if he'll do that, what else will he do? I want to talk a little bit more about the stakes here, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Miller, who is Donald Trump's point man on immigration, has publicly said that Trump as president would mobilize National Guard troops from sympathetic red states to execute mass deportations in blue state cities, kind of a red army. I got a fundraising appeal from Donald Trump's campaign just this morning that said deport, 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 sort of advertising this plan. What is all of this pointing to in your view, in terms of the stakes of this debate? Well, I mean, for so for instance, there has been a lot of um, angst 
among progressive immigration advocates over the over the very fact that President Biden agreed to the the deal that fell apart. Um, they didn't they don't want the Democratic Party agreeing to to measures like that. And I think Joe Biden's assessment is that if we um, don't create some some le- some greater level of order along the southern border, we're, what's going to happen here is going to be similar to what's happened in countries in Europe where uh, migration issues festers and led to the rise of right wing governments there. And what Stephen Miller, I think, is saying that d- d- Donald Trump is like embodies that threat, right? That the, um, the the border issue will remain unaddressed. He'll sweep into power and he'll use extraordinary, maybe even like illegal or extra constitutional measures um, to, uh, to 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 sweep immigrants out of the country. Um, and so I, I, I think those are essentially the stakes, right? That, that you can imagine um, President Biden prevailing on this issue in a way that um, gets some less, a greater level of order at the border than we have now, or, or Donald Trump can win the election. And we don't really know exactly what that would look like if it, if it was instituted. One thing I think we can say fairly certainly is that if, if they implemented that plan and it turned out that it was illegal and that the Supreme Court eventually says you couldn't do that, it would sort of be too late. You can't you can't send the National Guard, nationalize it, send it into blue cities, kick a bunch of people out of the country, and then undo that when a year or two later the courts say you didn't have the authority. So that's why they want to strike as soon as they take power. Brian, it was just a few short years ago, more than a few, call it eight years ago, maybe 10, when I was one of the reporters who stood in the Senate mm-hmm. with Lindsey Graham, who was at the center of the Gang of Eight, was at the center of moderate Republican efforts to reach a big bargain on immigration. And Lindsey Graham said, if Republicans don't get right with this issue, we'll be the party of angry white guys. We won't have a future in this country. Flash forward to now, where the answer, and Lindsey Graham is now part of this answer to giving Republicans what they want on the border, is no, we'd rather impeach the DHS Secretary Mayorkas. We would rather have a Texas governor defying the Supreme Court or appearing to defy the Supreme Court. That's that's our rather now. Given all that, why aren't Republicans scared of what Lindsey Graham warned of those 10 years ago? If we don't get with the broad middle on this issue, we won't have a future. Turns out he was wrong. Yeah, I think what happened is Donald Trump won the 2016 election. He convinced a lot of Republicans that the consensus wisdom that they had to play ball on, on immigration with Democrats to to be politically viable was was wrong and that they could uh, win uh, national elections drawing a hard line on immigration. Um, and in in fact, they, they sort of did become the, the party of angry white people, but they also found that um, that uh, like uh, um, uh, working class um, Latinos have moved in a Republican direction under Donald Trump. So it's paying off. So there has not been the cost that Lindsey Graham anticipated all those years ago. And we thought he was such a (laughs) brilliant political analyst, and maybe he was in a way much more surreptitious than we suspected. Well, that's Brian Boitler. He's author of Off Message. That's a substack covering politics. Also co-host of a podcast called Politics with an X on the end, and you can find it wherever you listen to your podcast. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It was great to be on. Well, the death of the border bill also put aid for Ukraine on life support, and Ukraine and Europe are watching. Joining us now from Warsaw, Poland, is Anne Applebaum. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Anne, welcome back to 1A. Thank you. 
Well, Anne, we're going to talk about the mess in Congress over funding Ukraine's defense. But let's get to some news, because over the weekend, Donald Trump did two things. First, he leaned on Senate Republicans not to pass war aid for Ukraine. And then at a rally in South Carolina, he said that if he's president, he might even encourage Russia to attack the U.S.'s NATO allies. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And this is very much the topic of your latest for the January-February issue of The Atlantic. Did you hear bluster there or a real threat to essentially abandon NATO? I heard a real threat to abandon NATO, and I heard it partly because Trump has said he would abandon NATO or he would consider abandoning NATO many times. Uh, the kind of language he used he, you know, in the U.S. in the last few days is not that different from language that he used in Europe when he was president behind the scenes at NATO summits. I've heard many European leaders um, tell me sometimes laughing, sometimes not laughing so hard, um, you know, about about him making very similar comments. I think this is part of a consistent um, line of argument. It's based on an incorrect perception. So Trump still thinks that NATO is a kind of you know, protection racket, you know, and that Europeans pay the U.S. to protect them. That's actually not how NATO works. NATO is an alliance and countries pay for their own defense and they fund their own armies. Um, And so, you you know, but that that misperception continues and he, uh, you know, and he continues to run with it. And we've been talking about the messy debate in Congress as well over funding Ukraine and immigration. I just played for you Donald Trump's comments saying he would invite Russia to invade NATO. GOP Senator Marco Rubio was asked about it, and he said this on CNN State of the Union. He's not the first American president. In fact, virtually every American president at some point in some way has complained about other countries in NATO not doing enough. Um, you know, Trump's just the first one to express it in these terms. But I, I have zero concern because he's been president before. I know exactly what he has d- done and will do uh, with the NATO alliance. And Marco Rubio was once a critic of Donald Trump. He was once a severe Russia hawk. And on CNN there, he's saying he has zero concern. What do you make of a statement like that? So I think there there are two points to make. One is that Rubio has echoed others in trying to distract, you know, sort of change the subject by returning to this issue of funding and whether countries are spending enough on the military. What Trump said, what was dangerous about it was not that. What he you know, what was dangerous was that he was saying it's fine if Russia attacks someone from NATO. Do the hell whatever, do whatever the hell you want, is what he said. And so he's raised the level of danger and threat to to something we've never heard. We've never had a U.S. president say Russia should attack a NATO ally. That is completely different from anything we've heard before. Uh, The second point is that Trump, you know, of 2024 is different from when Trump was president. When he was president, he expressed many of these ideas behind the scenes, but he had people around him, whether it was Jim Mattis, whether it was Mike Pompeo, um, whether it was even Mike Pence, you know, John Bolton, people who were trying to um, restrain him, who were arguing in favor of the U.S. continuing to protect its allies and, you know, not to use that kind of language in, in public. We have to assume that those kinds of people will not be in the Trump administration in, if if he were to win again a second time. Um, most of them have broken with Trump or they've 
fought with him, um, you know, many, you know, other other Republicans who would be, um, you know, part of, you know, mainstream or or historic understanding of, of why alliances are good for America and good for the world um, are also not inside the Trump camp. And instead, we would have uh, people who either don't know what NATO is or don't care. So I think it's very, very, um, uh, you know, it's very dangerous not to take the second, and I, you know, not to believe that a second Trump term would be the same as the first. Well, and we're going to talk a lot more about the perceptions in Europe over funding for Ukraine and in the U.S. Congress. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to getting connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Poncho in North Carolina. I think the we need to start reducing our funding for the conflict in Ukraine and Israel. And we need to start pushing more for a negotiated ceasefire in both conflicts. Both of these wars have become partisan issues in ways that I think is very unhealthy. And I think a lot of it unfortunately reflects in a sort of democratic response to blaming Putin for Donald Trump. And that has now extended into foreign policy in a way that I think is very dangerous. We ignore the role that NATO played in creating this conflict. We ignore uh, any of the external factors and instead just support continued rearmament. So, and there's a lot there, partisanship, Putin uh, and Trump and NATO's role in all of this. What's your response to Poncho's message? So the first point is that he's right. These, these conflicts have become partisan. U.S. foreign policy has become partisan in a way it never was, and that's extremely dangerous. Uh, secondly, Ukraine and Israel are very different stories. I would have a different argument about both of them. And, but right now we're mostly talking about Ukraine. So let me stick to that. Um, thirdly, NATO did not cause the conflict in Ukraine, the conflict in Ukraine, as we actually just heard president Putin tell Tucker Carlson a few days ago, um, is part of Russia's, uh, grand plan to reestablish itself as a, as an empire and as a European power. And it's it's also part of a plan eventually to spread Russia's borders further, as as he and others have said, um, have have said over the years. So we do have a clear interest in stopping Putin in Ukraine before he goes farther and before he attacks, um, so, you know, some of our some of our NATO allies. I, I, sh- I should also say that you know since the beginning of the war. People have wanted there to be a negotiated settlement. You know, there are some Ukrainians who've wanted a negotiated settlement. There have been attempts to behind the scenes to negotiate. There are there have been meetings between, you know, Americans, Russians and Ukrainians. 
Um, the Russians do not want to negotiate. And the reason they don't want to negotiate is that they think they're going to win. And so, one of the reasons they think they're going to win is because the U.S. they perceive as divided and they think they can use their uh, their influence and their information campaigns in Washington to block U.S. aid and European aid. Yeah. A moment ago, you mentioned this Tucker Carlson interview. And let's play a clip from that, specifically with Vladimir Putin discussing this aid question and the impact it had. And then we'll ask you to respond to it. I will tell you what we are saying on this matter and what we are conveying to the U.S. leadership. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons. It will be over within a few weeks. That's it. And then we can agree on some terms. So what do you say about that? This notion from uh, the Russian premier that ending U.S. aid makes this all go away. Ending USAID means that Russia conquers Ukraine. Uh, what does the conquest of Ukraine mean? We know because of what Russia has done in its occupied territories so far. It means mass arrests of Ukrainians. It means the construction of concentration camps. It means the deportation of children uh, as thousands have been deported from occupied territories elsewhere in the country. Um, it means the end of Ukraine as an independent nation, the end of Ukrainian democracy. And it also means that Russian troops are are closer, you know, more more Russian troops are able to be stationed closer to NATO and the threat to Poland, to uh, to Germany, um, you know, to to the Baltic states becomes much, much higher. Russia becomes a much more dangerous player and also emboldens Iran, who are Russian allies who've been helping uh, helping Russia win this war, emboldens North Korea, which is now explicitly tying itself to Russia and is uh, providing Russia with ammunition, uh, and it emboldens China, um, who will immediately see and understand this as the West saying, "Okay, do what you want," and it will it, it will encourage them to invade Taiwan. So, uh, you know, so it is an it is a really dangerous idea that we should stop aiding Ukraine, or and it's especially dangerous to think that by doing so we would end the war. We would not. We would make the war worse. We would make conflict more likely. But Anne. Vladimir Putin also said in that Tucker Carlson interview that he has no interest in Poland or Latvia or anywhere else. That's a quote. Um, why shouldn't we believe him? Do officials in Poland where you are or Latvia or anywhere else on Putin's doorstep believe that statement? No, first of all, because other Russian officials have been repeating constantly their interest in other countries. Uh, the Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, who's the former president of Russia, um, had a, wrote an 8,000 word essay about Poland and how Poland should be conquered. And actually in that same interview, Putin made had a series of extraordinary statements about Poland in which he said that Poland had somehow started the Second World War by encouraging Hitler to invade Poland. Um, you know, so so the you know, the, the, the Russian record on um, attempts to intervene in the Baltic states, attempts to threaten the Baltic states, also attempts to threaten and intervene in Scandinavia. There's a kind of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of tension on the Russian-Finnish border right now. Um, you know, we, we, we know that they're constantly testing and playing with ideas about, you know, just how far they can go uh, in, in, you know, in Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, and even Central Europe. And, and you know, I would not, I would not take that one statement in Putin's interview seriously. What about the situation in Ukraine itself? How dire is the situation for Ukraine's army in terms of their ammunition, their readiness, really their bullets right now as they wait and see whether the United States Congress and the United States is going to sort out their internal fights over aiding Ukraine? 
Right. So to be clear, they do have aid from Europe. European Union has passed an, an, a, a big $50 billion uh, bill, uh, aid promise in, in the last few days. You know, they are getting weapons from other places. The, the trouble is that it is really only the U.S. that has physically the hardware and the ammunition that Ukraine has right now. The, the U.S. production levels are just higher. U.S. storage is, is just greater. Um, and so the you know the Ukrainians ha- can feel on the battlefield right now they have less ammunition they are not able to to fight back against the Russians um, they are losing territory in parts of the country in eastern Ukraine um, and they are you know and and I should also say that this argument is having an important truly detrimental psychological effect on the Ukrainians and their and others as well you know be- because with the sense that the world is behind us our friends are with us. You know, this gives the Ukrainians something to believe in and something to fight for and a, and a sense that they will be able to hold out um, with the help of, you know, the international democracies who are, of course, as a group, still far more powerful than Russia. But with this argument inside the U.S. Congress, you know, the Ukrainians can hear the same arguments that we hear and they can hear programs like this one just as easily. You know, they are they are beginning to understand that maybe their you know, maybe their support is going to die. Maybe minorities in Europe and minorities in the U.S., can be you know amplified by 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 Russian propaganda and by disinformation campaigns can be used to to stop it. So so it has a you know the 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 mood in Ukraine right now is not great. So and you mentioned minorities in Europe and in the United States Congress who can kill aid for Ukraine thanks to Russian propaganda and Russian messaging. How did we get to the point in this country? What's your read on the migration of the Republican Party? from super hawkish, a a short six years ago, you and I would not be having a conversation about a Republican party that was balking on aiding Ukraine against Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. We just, the conversation would be foreign. Now it's very real. I know the answer is in a way Donald Trump, but what's your read on this change? How did it happen? So so I think there are two things, two or three things going on. One is that um, that, you know, the Republicans have identified, or some Republicans, I should say, not all of them, but a minority of Republicans have identified aid for Ukraine with Joe Biden. And because everything is now partisan, including foreign policy is partisan, they would prefer Ukraine to collapse and U.S. Uh, power to be damaged if that hurt Biden and helped Trump win the election. So I think, uh, you know, we're and, and we saw that with the border bill that you all were discussing earlier, that, you know, they'd rather, you know, the they'd rather the border remain in crisis instead of fixing it because, you know, that might help them win. I mean, that's astonishing on its face. And just to hear you say that, I don't disagree. They'd rather see Ukraine weakened and its eastern frontiers trod on by Vladimir Putin than see Joe Biden get a win. That's an extraordinary statement. Yeah, no, but I I, I deeply believe that's true. I mean, there is a, in addition, there's a part of the party um, that likes Putin. Um, Putin has tried to sell himself as a kind of, you know, a leader of a white, Christian nation, you know, defending traditional values. I mean, that's, you know, it's a longer conversation about why that's wrong. I mean, Russia is a multicultural nation with, you know, very large Muslim minority, maybe as high as 10%, um, you know, and, and, and isn't at all not remotely religious and, and actually they persecute uh, Protestant sects there. So, um, Hmm. so, you know, so it's not that at all, but it, but that's Putin's public line. That's been appealing to some people. And I, I think there is a, there's a part of the Republican Party now that likes the idea of autocracy. They like the idea that there should be one leader who can dictate the rules. Um, that's what Trump, you know, is yeah. is implying he will be. And 
and there's an appeal of you know to of the of a of a of a nation led by a strong man. I mean, I think it's I think we should you know that sounds strange to many Americans, but I think we are we are we are now at the stage where you can see many Republicans in Congress and outside of Congress. Um, you know, uh, falling into line. Yeah. And I feel like the defining question of this generation is, is it partisan or is it Trump? Like, is this is this the Republican Party or is it the outsized influence of one figure who is a Republican sort of shifting the party while he is the 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 standard bearer figurehead? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. How much of this is just all Donald Trump and his influence? Uh, you know, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, pe- people are affected by who the leader is you know who is the party leader you know who who are they you know uh, you know who's 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 the most important voice trump's has been the most important voice and he has shaped the views inside the party you know i don't think most republicans would have been intrinsically anti-ukraine or anti-democracy uh, you know or 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 pro putin a few years ago but because trump is and because he's been effectively the leader for 8 years that has a that has a shaping effect and and, and whatever you know, any democratic or autocratic elements there were inside the party, and I don't think they were the majority in the past. He's given them prominence. They've they've won they've won elections. They're the loudest voices, and, and so on. So I mean, I, th- I think it's a I think some latent elements which you have. I should say, by the way, you know, you can find um, on both the left and the right in in every country in the world. You can find people who are instinctive autocrats. Yeah. Um, now, question for you, because a lot of this is political within the United States, but there's a broader question of how this might affect the United States' relationship with its allies. How might a loss of trust between the U.S. and Ukraine have an impact on America's relationship with other countries? It will have a profound, lasting, long-term aspect, uh, impact. Um, the impact will be both strategic and economic. Uh, people will people will not buy American, um, you know, airplanes and, and energy equipment. You know, a lot of the U.S. presence in the world is because the U.S. is seen as the security provider. And when that disappears, much else will go with it. That was Ann Applebaum. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Thanks a lot for your time, Ann. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Elliot Williams. And I'm Todd Zwillick. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.